Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. What do we do when God is silent? This question was asked by the ancient Jewish people during their darkest era, the 7th century BCE. Assyrian armies had ransacked, looted, and burned their once beautiful land, destroying or exiling much of the populace, leaving behind scarred and traumatized inhabitants under a tyrant's rule. In this environment, violence and idolatry flourished. The prophets were silenced and the Torah nearly forgotten, threatening the survival of God's people. Into this spiritual vacuum, three new voices arose, Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah, who are some of the most unfamiliar prophets within the Book of the Twelve. What were their historical contexts, and what is the main divine message communicated by each? Drawing from the best of traditional and contemporary scholarship, Master Teacher Rabbi Yaakov Beasley shows us why these prophets are as relevant today as they were to the Jews of Judah so many centuries ago. Join us as we speak with Yaakov Beasley about his recent commentary on these prophets, Lights in the Valley. You're listening to New Books and Jewish Studies, a channel of the New Books Network, and I'm your host, Michael Morales. Rabbi Yaakov Beasley is a popular and passionate educator, lecturer, and writer on the Bible in North America and Israel. He studied at Yeshiva University and Herzog College and holds an MA with and is a doctoral candidate at Bar Ilan University. Rabbi Beasley, Welcome to New Books in Jewish Studies. Thank you very much. Um, I'm Yaakov, and for being called that. So, Yaakov, would you tell us about yourself and what led to your study of the prophets? I am a 55-year-old Canadian-Israeli, a very interesting mixture. I grew up in a small town in Canada. Back then, it was a small town. Um, it was a car factory town with quite a... Um, with a small little rich neighborhood on in the south on the lakeside. Now it's been subsumed by Toronto. It's a very different environment. But back then I would go out, you know, in the winter and play in the frozen ponds, you know, hockey like any good Canadian kid was supposed to do. I was fortunate to have really, really both intelligent but questioning parents and grandparents. One one grandparent was a my grandfather was a aeros an engineer, an aeronautics engineer, you know, 12th generation Canadian. Um, the other was an immigrant from Bukovina, which is now part of but who spoke eight languages. And but both my mother, my father, my grandparents, my grandmother was, you know, he could beat her in Scrabble. They're all very intelligent, but also very questioning and taught me to ask questions. For my bar mitzvah um, present, my 13th year, I was. My parents decided to send me away to Israel when I was for a year, in, when I was only in 10th grade. I wasn't sure whether that was a reward or a punishment at the time. I'm the oldest of five wonderful siblings, you know, five. And, but it was a wonderful experience. I came back and my parents made the decision to send me to a Jewish school in Toronto where I came across great friends. And I think like all of us, when we talk about how does our journey begin, who are the great teachers who inspire you, who lights a spark under you and who wants, and if imitation is the best, sincerest form of flatterly, I just loved the teachers I had and I became a teacher myself, trying to pay this by way of paying it forward. When I got to New York, I did horribly in Talmudic studies, which for um, for some Jewish circle, that's a very, that's not a good thing to know. You don't enjoy Talmud, that's supposed to be the bread and butter of their Jewish religious life. I just gravitated and I had all these hours that I was supposed to be studying Talmud and I filled them up with Bible courses and course after course and such a variety of ideas and teachers and the discussions and the ideas and this became my passion and my love. I moved to Israel. I've been living in Israel since 1993 with a three-year stopover in Minnesota um, during at the turn of the century and we've been I've been, teach, been fortunate to teach Torah for over 30 years to share ideas, develop ideas. I'm presently in, um, 
at an Israeli high school in north of Beit Shemesh called Inocham, and I teach also advanced Tznach studies in an American yeshiva program, a very interesting program, Yeshiva Hezulei Torah. It's the only American program that takes students who, after their gap year, they want to go into the army. So it's a training program for them, and I teach the crazy courses, untold tales of the Tanakh, the you know the stories that nobody ever gets to look at, when Nebuchadnezzar turns into a werewolf, and as you can see, Nachum Chavokim and Spani are not the most read of prophets, so I naturally, gravi- I naturally gravitated towards them. Everybody seems to know the Isaiahs and the Jeremiahs, but who reads Nachum? Who, who looks? Who even looks at these um, books? And that's why I wrote this book to hopefully introduce people to what I, who I, enjoy, I call three of my closest friends. They accompanied for five, six years of my life, studying them, learning them. And hopefully, I, if I didn't think the message was still relevant, I wouldn't have written the book. Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah, do they hold any unity in terms of historical context or themes? So let's go back one step. I want to make a suggestion, and I do so in the book. I begin with an entire chapter on the, just the history. This period of time, they're all dated to the 7th century before the Common Era which begins in the year 701 BCE, which we celebrate as the defeat of Sanchera's army, Sanchera's in the invasion, but is then followed by 55 years of rule in the southern kingdom, the only remaining kingdom under a man called Menashe. I excuse, I know it's supposed to say Menashe, I'm just so used to saying Menashe, excuse me. So you have King Hezekiah, one of the great believers, It's in the, the Bible calls him in King's um, to 18, one of the, the greatest believer in God. And yet when he leaves the throne a couple years later, the country is a smoldering ruin because the Assyrians have destroyed the country. And into this gap sits this 12-year-old kid named Menashe. Now, I'm, for some people, this would be very, but he's the worst king in the Book of Kings. He's the worst king there is. I'm so sympathetic to this poor child who assumes the role of kingship and his decision is functionally to surrender to the Assyrians. And for 55 years, the country of Judah is a vassal state. And if we were judging kings solely on their GDP or how well the economy is doing, Menashe would do great. He rebuilt the country and you see archaeologically all these wonderful, you know, Buildings propping up, you know, around in his time. But the Bible tells us in, in Kings 2 21 that he is the worst king ever. He is the king who leads, who's going to lead to the destruction of the southern kingdom because the price of that economic and political, the economic growth is a, a lack of political freedom, but more importantly, a surrender to religiously to the Assyrians. So I have a sense of sympathy towards him, but I want to raise the next question. What does the average person at the time living under Menashe feel? If you're living in, we don't realize how close all of Judaism, all of monotheism is to disappearing at this point in time. There are, there's a long period of time where there are no prophets. The Bible describes they're nearly wiped out. He kill, This Bible describes that he kills off the prophets. There's nobody left. And why would you listen to God? I'm going to raise this as a question. Why would you? After all, the king who listened to God led the country to almost ruin. The king who was following the Assyrian gods and following the idolatry is leading the country on this renewal. From an ancient point of view, I would understand if an average Jewish person, a person living in Judah, would say, either our God has abandoned us or the Assyrian gods have won. Ashur is greater than Hashem, and that would be a, and you can imagine now, that's the background at which all these three prophets, these are, this is their audience, this is who they're speaking to. In a contemporary parable, the Jews who came from Russia, um, at the turn of 1990, when they started to flood Israel, when the gates and the wiring curtain falls and the gates open and they're flooding the country, and people who have been so excited now realize we have an entire population of people for three generations who don't have the knowledge, the traditions, the beliefs that have characterized the Jewish people. How do we reintegrate them into 
citing. That's exactly that is exactly how the um, Jews at, the, at that time period in the seventh century must have felt like. And this is what the prophets have to deal with. So all of these three prophets, Nahum, he is going to have to reinterpret the history for his listeners. Habakkuk is going to have to discuss the question that we always ask, which is, why are these good things happening to the bad people? Why are all these, all we see are the righteous being swallowed by the wicked? Where are you, God? What is, can you please explain what's going on? And Sephania, who is going to hold the people accountable, but as we'll save him for the last, he has, his twist on that message is very different. What would the main message of Nahum be? And how would it apply today? The name Nahum is really a misnomer. Um, Nahum means comfort, right? Menachem, condolences, comfort. There's something positive. Yet this is a man whose first words, you know, after the introductory verse are, God is vengeful, God holds grudges, God has not forgotten. He is, not only is it harsh, but he's actually taking one of the most famous lines in the Bible, the recitation of the 13 attributes of mercy in Exodus 34, Hashem, Hashem, El Rachum B'chanan, God is merciful, he is kind, he is gracious, and he turns it into El Kanob Nokem Hashem, Nokem Hashem God is gentle, God is jealous, God is going to full wrath, he's going to take revenge on everybody, and he, as important note in the first chapter, he doesn't tell you who the target of his words are we know because we read this the introduction his listeners didn't have the introduction and you have this prophet come out of nowhere and just very harshly you know god is coming for you god god is coming to attack you god, god is coming to destroy and who is he talking about and is this possible i gave my son a fun little question at the table last uh, the sabbath table we were singing a song and it's the only song that makes reference to Nahum or even hints towards it. That God is vengeful, or God will is not vengeful, but he keeps track of those who are protective of the Sabbath. It's the only allusion to Nahum in the Jewish Sabbath liturgy. There's it makes everybody uncomfortable. In the book I mentioned that there are Christian scholars who say explicitly. This is not the God. This is an Oriental God. This is earlier scholars who are making the distinction between the Old and the New um, Testaments. That the, this is the Oriental, vengeful God. This is not a God of our canon. But even in Jewish thought, the only time it appears in the liturgy is actually in a, a triennial half-Torah cycle, and it's read when they would read the story of the rape of Dina. Which, if you think about what that means, it is understood as a "we're coming for you," and this is not a this is not the way we portray God. Not in our Hebrew schools and not in our Sunday schools. God is coming to get you. God is, and he's, and we don't know who it is. And then slowly, like a you know, like a magician, Nahum slowly reveals who he's talking about. He's talking about, believe it or not, the Assyrians. And to his listeners, that must have been a really amazing, really. They've been in charge of this neighborhood for a hundred years. They beat us badly. And Nahum has to reframe what happened. No, God gave the Assyrians the power to beat you. And he retells the story, the destruction of Gilad and Bashan, but not the way Isaiah describes it, where the Assyrians destroyed, but rather this is God who's responsible for it. Because if you remember back in Isaiah 10, he's, what's the biggest fear that Isaiah has? at the time of the Assyrian invasions. If you see Assyria beat us, don't think it means they're more powerful. Understand this is God using the Assyrians to advance his own purposes. So Nachum is slowly educating the people. And if it just stopped there, I think you and I would be very comfortable with the book of Nachum. Unfortunately, there's two more chapters. I've always described Nachum as an impressionist painting. He describes in vivid detail Assyrian soldiers in Nineveh running around, scurrying around, hiding from the spears and the sword as the invasion happens. There's a, in verse, in chapter 3, there's a line, um, if you, in Hebrew, it comes off so beautifully, the, the Hebrews, bodies, flame, heaps of courses, no end, 
there's no sentence there. It's just impression, picture after picture after picture. Sounded like Stephen Crane's Red Badge of, Badge of Courage. We had to read that in high school. The great impressionist descriptions of the Civil War. Nahum is doing the same thing. He, everybody likes his poetry, don't you? But the message it leaves for many people a lot to be desired. And he seems to be reveling in this. Finally, this is happening. So I think now we can ask your second question. What does that tell us for today? And it's a very difficult question to answer because we aren't used to envisioning God as angry or vengeful or jealous. Or we try to emphasize other aspects. We definitely don't say, be like God, be vengeful, be like God. You know, we we talk about be like, you know, when the Talmud talks about the mitzvah, the commandment to walk in God's ways, it says, God is merciful, be merciful. God closes clothes the naked, please provide clothing, take care of the poor, visit the sick, look at and to bring examples of God doing so. It doesn't bring examples of God wreaks havoc and vengeance and death and destruction upon the world, so please do the same. We don't, we don't do that. It's not something that we are meant to aspire to. So the question is, how do we deal with it? So I want to suggest one fascinating approach, which I, is historically wrong, but I think the imagery is accurate. So a friend of mine, uh, Ravanit Shani Terrigan, the vice, the vice chairperson of Mizrahi Israel, one of the a great Bible scholars in her own right, she described Nachum as, if you imagine somebody being taken away in the railway car to the concentration camps, and he's reciting poetry against that, promising his listeners the Germans would also fall, then that becomes, that's the way she envisioned it always. Now, historically, Nachman speaks several generations after the Assyrians did most of their damage, but the, really the message is the same. We have to be bothered by the question that this is Nachum raises and Habakkuk will raise. There are powerful beings, institutions, states, entities that seem to commit evil with no end, and they seem to evade punishment all this time. And we have to religiously, you know, that should bother us. The existence of evil in any form and in an institutionalized way should be something that we can't hide in our own little personal communities and say everything's fine and everything's good. I don't know how you read Nahum. To me, Nahum is a very challenging book. It's a challenging book um, religiously. It's a challenging, but it, I think he's asking the question we all want to know. We still see people who are successful and evil exist, and Nahum's message in that way, as you said, his name means comfort. God's justice is impaired. Our ability to understand God is impaired as long as evil persists in this world. As long as people can continue to perform acts of cruelty, that weakens God's, um, you know, his revelation, the way he appears in this world. And Nahum's challenging us, hey, come on, God will, this. don't worry, God will take care of this too. And the question I always ask is, so his listeners listening to him, surrounded by an Assyrian soldier at the marketplace, if you can imagine the, you know, the Assyrian soldier here, and this guy is quietly teaching, you know, he's not going to be here in 10 years. He's not going to be here in 20 years. He too will disappear. The Hebrew saying is, Gamze Yavor, this will pass. Um, the Yiddish saying is much more fun, which is these famous... If I could just tell an old Yiddish uh, proverb, if you don't mind. Go for it. Okay. So the Polish nobleman calls his Jewish landowner and says, I need you to, the church is on my, the Catholic church is on my case. Please, you I have to evict you. You have to leave. And the land, the overseer, as it were, he turns and says, that's too bad. You know, I can teach your horse how to speak. He goes, really? And he goes... Yeah, it's not a problem, okay? But it'll take a year. All right, I'll give you a year. Teach my horse how to speak. I'll, I'll, I'll stand up to the bishop. And so he goes home, and like any good husband, what does he do? Tells his wife, I've made this great deal. What happened? The adult ones just went crazy. He wants to throw us out. So I told him I could teach the horse to speak. And she goes, are you crazy? Are you nuts? You, we can't, we don't know how to teach horses to speak. He goes, I know. But a lot can happen to you. Perhaps the nobleman will die. 
perhaps the horse will die. So there's a sense of patience. Yeah, you never, it's, it's a very Yiddish sense of humor. You know, just wait, wait out there. Perhaps the horse will die. Shema Yudotot And Nachum, I think, is saying, wait, you'll see God's hand. Just have to hold on. You have to be a little bit more patient because it's going to happen. And in, in the, and he speaks in such dramatic terminology that you're always there watching. And perhaps one of the most fascinating things historically, look at the Assyrian Empire. The seventh century, the first half is what they call the Pax Assyriana. You know, the Assyria rules the world. They've gone to, they not only gone into Egypt in 663, they conquered Thebes. That's hundreds of miles down the Nile River. And they're moving. They're not moving it on tanks and trucks. They're, you know, this is, this is, they've conquered everything. And Nahum makes reference to the fall of Thebes. He mentions it, he men, mentions it in chapter three. So the Assyrians are on top of the world. And he's telling them, oh, they'll fall too. Don't worry. It's going to happen. Be patient. And we know within, you know, half a century, bad leadership, all of a sudden, there's pressure from the Sistians, the Babylonians, and the Medes, and all of a sudden, this mighty empire disappears. And that's not only, you know, come, not only comes true. Habakkuk is a very different sort of book, narrating the prophet's own struggles and dialogues with the Lord. And it ends with his prayer and hymn. Would you give us insight into Habakkuk's message? I think he's asking the question we all ask, right? Why is there evil in this world, and why does it appear to flourish? And let's begin from the very beginning. The prophecy that he foresees, and it says, How long, O Lord, will you cry out and you not hear me? And I think the first important point of this book is he's allowed to voice that. Nobody tells him that he's not a believer or he is in some way um, forbidden. There's something it's not proper to ask that question. He's told, you know, he's asking. Part, part of this book is not only here's a list of theology 101 and here's all the answers you need when the non-believer confronts you. This is a very personal book and it's a very, very challenging book. And he goes through two dialogues where he turns to God and he says, I see evil around me. I see all these um, robbery, injustice, strife, contention. He's got all the, in Hebrew, it's just, you know, just, it just piles on oven, amel, okay, reeve, madon, and he says, poor is not respected, meaning, goodness, why would somebody be good if evil pays? Why, what, do you not understand the effect of, you know, do good because you're defeating your own purpose, God, and justice has become and God responds in this first dialogue, oh, don't worry, I have the perfect solution. They're called the Babylonians. They're going to come in and clean up everything. At which point, Kabuka throws his hands up in the air and he says, I'm complaining about injustice. And he doesn't say whether he's referring to the injustice of the old, of the people of Judah, the Jews of his time. Is he referring to the Assyrians? And somehow replacing them with a worse government is somehow the answer. How does this solve the problem? And this becomes for. Habakkuk, the, he goes, this doesn't do anything. In fact, all that happens is the Babylonians are going to invade in a way that nobody escapes. And he describes it like a net, you know, the fish net that comes. But we talk nowadays about the problem about fishing in the oceans because these trawlers use these nets that are so small that not even the smallest fish can survive. Okay, we talk, you know, this is what the way Habakkuk's already describing the Babylonian army as they come through. And he's, whether he lives, I don't have a problem with placing him earlier. There are many, there are many scholars who like to place him close to the Babylonian um, rise, which begins with the, really the Battle of Parchimation, 605. I place him actually in the time of Benash as well, because he's, he's very similar to Nachum. He's asking the same questions. Um, if you want to place him a little later, that's fine. But it has to be the Babylonians advance has to be a surprise the way he speaks about and then almost like a spoiled child but it's fascinating in chapter two he begins i will stand right here until i get an answer i'm going to stand here and i'm going to draw a circle in the sand and you will and you are i'm not leaving until i get an answer 
And rabbinic tradition says the great pony, the circle maker, you know, learns from a couple book. Sometimes you just have to stand in front of God. There's a story of Kony demanded rain, and he's not going to take no for an answer from God, and he's going to fight for rain all the way through until the rain comes. And this is what, and he learns it from Kabbalah. Sometimes you have to turn to God and say, I can't accept this. I need an answer. And God's response is, okay, there will be an answer, but it's going to take some time, meaning you won't be able to see it immediately. This is really the same answer that King David talks about in the song for the Sabbath in Psalm 92, where he says, fools look around, and it, but King David gives you the, an, the question and answer immediately. Fools look around and see the wicked flourish like grass, which is such a great image because there's so many of them, but ultimately they're there, here today, gone tomorrow. And along comes, but the righteous, he will grow like a garden on tree. You know, which is a beautiful, majestic tree which will last for a very long time, but it takes time for that to grow. And that's David's answer to this question. God himself is telling Habakkuk, you just have to be patient. It's really very hard if you're to you keep hearing this word patience again and again. But the prophets are wrestling with the questions that we always should be wrestling. So on one hand, Habakkuk is telling us about the um importance of asking questions. It's not discredited. In fact, that's part of the, the, the dialogue is part of the um, prophecy, as it were. Part of his prophecy is not just, oh, he asked a question, God gave him an answer, but there's a religious value to the very questions that he asked. And that's something that we so often, so often just forget. We're so look, running to try to find the answer, we have to be motivated to be asking the questions. And then God finally says, I'll give you an answer, but you have to have faith. And you have to wait for it to come. And the righteous will live by his faith. And that's the first half of Kabbalah. And if I stopped here, that would be okay. He told me, wait, what happens next? Once again, but there's more. And Kabbalah actually tries to formulate two answers on his own. One in chapter two and one in chapter three. And you talked about, you know, that there's a psalm in the third chapter, which, but let's look at chapter two, because that's the one everybody skips. It's interesting. Chapter 3 is interesting because it's a psalm, and it's also read on the second day of Shavuot, the Pentecost, is the Torah reading, because it's the only time the prophets actually mentioned the giving of the Torah at Sinai. Historically, that's not mentioned by the prophets, which is very, which in itself is a fascinating idea. I have some ideas. We can talk about that. But first, let's look at chapter 2. In chapter 2, he goes through five separate woes prophecies. Woe to he who builds a house with that is a, that is not his, and the house will collapse. And he then ties it to Babylon. Woe to he who makes evil profit, and, and the, for the stone will cry out the wall. Woe to build a city of bloodshed. And it, it's interesting. This is an interesting um, answer because he says, what he says, I'm suggesting you build a house um, with and he describes it, the bricks are the acts by which, which you build it. I build a house illegally, I build a house with evil acts and evil deeds. It will collapse under its own weight. He doesn't mention God's name. He says the very nature of evil is it will collapse. And it's something that you have to watch what happens. I remember I taught many years ago this wonderful, wonderful student. Um, and we were talking about business, business people. And... Everybody, 18-year-old girls, oh, businessmen, they're always trying to rip you off. They're always trying to make money. And this girl got up, and she was so upset. She goes, are you crazy? My dad's a businessman. And if he was ever dishonest, or he ever deceived a customer, or tried to defraud one of his suppliers, he'd be out of business. Real human progress, the real actions are actually very moral. You, I provide you the best service I can. You provide me the best payment you can, what Stephen Covey in, you know, in the 90s called the win-win situation. But she was upset that he would, people think to be successful in business, you have to be immoral. You have to be sneaky. You have to be deceitful. And she was adamant. No. My, it's not just, I, I appreciated her loyalty to her father, but it was really awakening to me the way she was. No, I need, this. not the way business works. If you want to be successful in life, 
it doesn't, evil doesn't pay. You do what's right and everything will take care of itself. And that's how Habakkuk begins. And then slowly he brings in if you and those who drink and those who take advantage of people and their weaknesses and God will come and deal with them. God is obviously part of the moral equation. But in Habakkuk's um, um, viewpoint, the first answer is just watch evil collapse under the weight of its own transgressions. It's not going to last. The very optimistic viewpoint, and you know, we all want to hear that. We now arrive at chapter three, which is one of the most beautiful psalms in um, really the biblical literature. And how the question we have to be asking is how does this answer the questions that Achalpuk's been asking? God, where are you? Why is evil flourishing? And this become and instead he breaks out into song somehow, and it's a, such a strange shift because we've had this prophet who's questioning and challenging and there's no other word to describe the man's got chutzpah he's got a sense of you know he's not afraid to attack god directly and you know challenge him and now all of a sudden he's seeing god's praises and you're wondering where is this coming from and he begins with this you know description of the giving of the of the torah He's drawing off of Exodus, he's drawing off Deuteronomy, but then he describes the defeat of the Egyptians, the defeat of the uh, the entry into the land, all these great historical events that were in the memory of the Jewish people. Okay, that the Jewish people when when they would talk about these events, this was still very very seared into their memory, and that's a very clever rhetorical move because he's telling them. We do learn. If you have questions, we have a history. This isn't someone new. This isn't someone that you're not asking the the theological question of somebody who hasn't been involved in the past. I remember a teacher of mine was talking about Kierkegaard and Abraham's great leap of faith, okay, when he's commanded to sacrifice his son. And I don't want to open that discussion now because that's such a complicated discussion. But the teacher said something very fascinating to me, which sticks to me with this day, was a leap of faith occurs when you don't know the people involved or the parties involved. This is not a leap of faith because Abraham and God have formed this relationship. They argued, they've debated, they've had ups, they've had downs, they've had long periods of childlessness and going to Egypt, and yet they've had birth of children and Sarah being miraculously visited and people. So to call it a leap of faith as if I have no idea what's going to happen is all, it's almost a misnomer for that reason. When you have that relationship, then you learn to trust, you learn to open up. And that was his end. I think Habakkuk's answer to the Jewish people. He does it in song and he doesn't do it in, he doesn't descend up to like, guys, have you forgotten all of everything you learned in Jewish history 101? Have you not learned that God will care for the for the poor, for the downtrodden? You forgot. He doesn't rate them, but he just simply begins to sing. Just, and it's a, such a beautiful shift. <laughs> it's a very pleasant shift in the way that Habakkuk has been approaching up until now. It's been very argumentative and very, you know, combative, and now it's song. And this and this becomes, I think, such an important, important message. Look at history. You can trust. You have this relationship. You can trust God. And this is how you learn to develop the trust. If you, when somebody's been in a relationship for two months, and they, you know, I'm not sure what does he, you know, you see this, you know, young couples all the time. But somebody who's been through, you know, years and years together. As the old musical said, for 25 years, I've darned your socks, washed your clothes. If that's not love, what is? You know, from further on the roof. But that's, there's a, there's tremendous meaning in that. Because you've built something together and you've done something together. That's what Kabbalah, I think, tries to tell the people. So he starts off so combatively. And at the end, he is so, so happy, you know. I will, it ends, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will jubilate in the Lord of my salvation. God, the Lord is my strength. Okay. To the conductor with my melodies. And he's like, I just want to sing. He's ready to break forth in song. And you, but for us, the reader, is that, tra- how does that transformation occur? And you slow, 
he asked the questions, he asked the hard questions, and then he was able to get the answers that he needed. He was able to develop, you know, this, and then look back and reflect, you know, evil doesn't pay. You know something? We've got a history. We've got a relationship. It's a wonderful, it's, it's, such, a, it's such a wonderful book. Most people don't view Bible books as cheerful. The truth is, there's, there are many books where it's not too, there's a lot to, you know, I always tell the students sometimes when they come in and say, guys, we're having a cheerful story today. You know, they're like, wow, this is different. This is exciting. You know, this is it's not a, just simply reciting all the failures and the mistakes that people have made in the past. We do, every now and then we do something right. And here, this is a lesson that Habakkuk learns and it's really a very fascinating um, approach. So that's Habakkuk. I don't know if you can hear my voice. I happen to love Habakkuk. He breaks into song, and I sometimes can, I understand exactly why. First of all, I agree completely with you against Kierkegaard's reading. Faith is trust, and it takes a relationship for that trust to develop. Now, on Habakkuk, I've always found something of a parallel with Job, who had also had a lot of chutzpah, questioning God, demanding justice. And then when God shows up in his fearsome glory, Job's questions fall to dust. It's like the answer is God himself, not some syllogism. And I wonder if that's also what Habakkuk's prayer is about. God came from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. His glory covered the heavens. The everlasting mountains were scattered. It's like a verbal theophany. And after his eyes are open to the greatness of God, his questions seem less urgent. And he's able to wait patiently on God for his salvation. And even though the fig tree may not blossom, he's still able to rejoice in the Lord. I had a teacher once say about Job, he was questioning the nature of God's response to him. God finally shows up, you know, can you magically? And he says, God evades the issue. Okay, he doesn't answer any question. Do you know the stars of the sky and the birds and the fish? I remember my teacher saying, this is Rabbi Nakam Lan of blessed memory, what does Job's failure to master the science of ethicology have to do with the theological validity of his spiritual yearnings? That was this 18-year-old. I'd never heard anybody put that many multisyllabic words together in a sentence before. It was in and of itself fascinating, but it was, and his answer was very much what you said. God, Job doesn't get the intellectual satisfaction. Ah, now I've got the handbook to God for dummies. 101, I know what God is doing at every moment in time. I don't, but whereas he previously believed in God as a theoretical quasi-guide, now God is somebody who spoke to him, and that was comforting. That enough, and that, what he argued was the real message of Job's answer, which I thought was such a fascinating, that's what that's what it's about. Do we get to that, those moments in life when we get to sense God's presence and that feeling where things are just going to be all right? We have those moments. We, just as we have the question, the Habakkuk of chapter one, who's questioning and where is God and why am I having struggling? Why are we having difficulty? Both on a personal level, on a global level, and whatever, in whatever sphere you know you it bothers you. But we do have these moments where, yeah, it fits into place. I see it now, and you just sense God's presence, and you that helps. And that's what Habakkuk, I think, is really trying to say to his listener. Turning to Zephaniah's prophecies. What has always amazed me is the contrast between how the book begins and ends. It begins with prophecies of doom and judgment on Israel for idolatry, but it ends with the Lord rejoicing over Israel and quieting her with his love, even singing over the nation. Would you tell us about this transformation, how Zephaniah ends with hope? Do I have five minutes just to introduce Zephaniah? Of course. Yes. Zephaniah. In Hebrew, Zephaniah, I actually named my fifth son. I have privileged to have five wonderful boys. They wouldn't be very offended to hear that because they're between 32 and 22, 23. Five wonderful young men. Um, fathers, hard workers, those that are fathers, those that are married, but they're all really proud of every one of them. I named my fifth son Yoshial Tzifania. Um, Yoshial being the Hebrew name for Josiah, who is the king at the time. And let's just give a little bit of historical background. Manasseh is king for 55 years. He dies approximately 642, 641 before the Common Era. And after two years of Manasseh's son, Amon, then this young eight-year-old child takes power. And he does exactly what his grandfather does. 
his grandfather rebelled against his great grandfather. Menashe rebels against Hezekiah, whereas Hezekiah is considered righteous, Menashe is considered evil. Although I've said I do understand where a 12 year old would just look at the situation and say, This is the best thing I can do for my country. And all of a sudden, Chronicles more than Kings describes Josiah, Yoshiao in Hebrew, this religious growth and transformation. He's decided he's going to clean up the country once and for all religiously. He's going to bring people back to proper morality, remove idolatry. And again, the Bible describes him in such superlative terms. There was no king who loved God with all his heart, all his soul, all his might, which is a play on um, Deuteronomy 6.4. You should love God with all your soul. This is the greatest PH, honorary PhD that the Bible really can give a king. And Zephaniah, Zephaniah speaks at the beginning of this time period. And he's looking at the people. And as I said, this is the people who have not had any sense of religious structure or morality have been worshiping idols for almost two, if not three generations. And he comes and tells them, you know, we have to shape up because we, the cost of not shaping up is going to be tremendous. I would say biblical, but he's already is, but I don't know if he knew that at the time, but he brings references to Noah's, um, you know, at the beginning of the book, he's bringing references to Noah's, um, flood, the story of the flood, the, and at the end, he's bringing references to um, the Tower of, Bab of Babel. Okay, he's talking about everybody talking in a clear language. He's really denigrated by scholars. I came across one scholar, and I just want to read the quote because it just upset me so much. He's basically an echo reformulation of earlier prophetic material. And it sounds like, you know, in contemporary terms, as we say, he'd be a cover band for side B, 45s. You know, he's just almost everything that he says, there's really nothing original, but it's so untrue because he's doing it with a very different audience and he has to choose his words so carefully. And he has this, you asked a question about the beginning and end of the book. You know, he starts off, this is very harsh. He's coming after the idolatry, the, those who worship on the roof to the God, to the sun and the gods of the heavens. And then he immediately goes to social justice, those who steal the clothings off the back of people, those who wear strange clothing. And it's fascinating, just that phrase, to wear strange clothing, what does that mean? The commentators go wild with that. Some, are, is it clothing they've stolen from the poor? It's interesting. We don't think about stealing the sociological impact of stealing clothing nowadays. You don't steal clothing, right? We might, you know, we might repossess somebody in the knapsack or... Uh, out a handbag, but we don't steal clothing. So the commentators are like, are they stealing from the poor? Are they taking it for longer? And there's one opinion that says those who, what is strange clothing, they act more pious than they really are, which is such a fascinating, I always wonder why he thought, you know, what was who was, was he speaking about? But I was speaking about his time, but he was just it was a very fascinating image in himself. And he talks about this is going to be this day of great destruction, he loves, you know, he just loves his wordplay. Okay, this will be a day of darkness and um, destruction. Uh, you know, I'm just trying to find the exact words because the Hebrew is so much better than um, than mine. But he goes on, the day of death, death the day of destruction. So I'm trying to find the English here. The day of God is near, the day of Hashem, a day of fury, a day of trouble and distress, a day of death, destruction and desolation. A day of darkness of blasphemy. Yom Saram Tukah, Yom Shoam Shuah, Yom Koshapila, Yom Anarapha. You just hear the rhythm of his speech. It's such beautiful Hebrew. But now I want to answer your question. So having given at least an introduction to what he's trying to do, I want to ask a simple but why does he begin with the flood imagery? What would the flood imagery um symbolize to the ancient listener? And I suggest in the book that Siphaniah, I find to me, the most fascinating of all the prophets there, because what he makes clear to his listeners, the flood spares no one. And the flood is not just coming for it. You taught, you, you phrase the question, destruction will come for the Jewish people, and then it will be redeemed for the Jewish people. So Phanias doesn't see destruction coming for the Jewish people. He actually sees the fate of the Jewish people, the fate of humanity, intertwined, interlinked, connected. One of us, we both have to get it right. Everybody has to play their part. And that's part of the flood imagery. 
It's a very, very universal message. It's not a specific, I'm going to do to you what the Assyrians did, or I'm going to do to you what the Midianites did in the time of Gidon. No, I'm going to bring a flood upon the world. Beast, fowl, fish. I'm going to return the world back to, he almost, in the chapter one, it's very clever, literally counts down, undoes creation. Because we need to, all of us need to get this right. And the structure I suggest in the book is chapter one, it begins with a destruction that will threaten everybody, interestingly enough, and then a destruction that will threaten the Jewish people, and then the way out. Chapter two, The second section begins destruction of specific nations around. Again, it's this universal the destruction that will affect the Jewish people, and then the way out. And then he flips it in the third, chapter in um, verse 9 where he says first we're going to redeem the nations of the world and then we're going to redeem the Jewish people and then everybody is going to be redeemed and we're all going to rejoice in each other's successes which is really to me a very fascinating the structure I think conveys the message he's not looking at this and saying well this is only for us and only for you we're it's a very very challenge you know Isaiah is considered universalistic. Almost has moments of universalism, you know, where he's talking to the nations. But Sophania, more than anybody, is the one saying, we've all got to get it. And I think that's why he specifically focuses on the two Genesis imageries of the flood story and this Tower of Baba. The Tower of... Because what connects the two... There's no Jewish people. This is humanity, which has a stake in the cause. It's not just, well, if we, if this people is successful, well, and if they're not successful, then we're all, we can all just, no. This is a, we are all in this together. And this is what God originally intended. You know, God did not, my students get very offended when I say this, but the Jewish people are plan C. You read the Bible carefully. We're not supposed to be God's chosen people in the Bible. The way the Bible portrays it, we're not, we're supposed to. Adam was given a chance. Noah was given the chance. The people of Baal were given the chance. And then God says, okay, I'm going to bless Abraham, but the goal of blessing Abraham is to bless all the people of the world. And if they can get it right and they can get it right, I can bring everything, everybody back to a state where all, everyone in together can uh, properly worship and celebrate the world that God created. And that I think is what motivates Stefania. He's a, such a fascinating character. It's a very unique message, and the, as I mentioned, the Hebrew is, there's a playfulness in his Hebrew too. I just have to, I have to mention, he, when he starts talking about the Philistine cities, okay, he talks about Gaza will be des deserted, Ekron will be your wasteland, but if you hear it in Hebrew, he azazuba, ekron te aker, ekron te aker, you hear the wordplay. He and Mitha are really the two prophets in my mind that really just Nahum as well. Well, Nahum has what makes, Nahum makes upwards that aren't seen, you know. He's more the, you know, he makes upwards. He's Shakespeare. He He's the Shakespeare of the Jew, of the prophetic canon. But Zephania and Micha, they loved, you can just feel the love for language that they have. That's something we don't appreciate so as much as we should sometimes. So that's Zephania. Zephania is talking to a people who really, really are on their last legs. If Yoshiao gets it right, then that's going to be great. We're going to, and if he doesn't, then we're going to have to, and that's what happens. When the Josiah dies in 608, the southern kingdom falls apart within two decades. And it's almost as if the Bible says, okay, this experiment of Jewish national sovereignty is a way for values and morals to be demonstrated is not working. And let's see how what happens next and it's an interesting question that we um that anybody who's reading the bible and, or just following what's happening in the news nowadays is asking themselves how do we get to that next state how do we go back to what that plan is and that's Sophania. that reversal of the tower of babel imagery is also seen in micah 4 and isaiah 2 is the nation's strain to zion whereas at the tower of babel the nations were dispersed and scattered in divine judgment Eventually, there's the great hope that the nations will return to God uh, by coming to Zion. I think it, it, 
So my next book is actually on Micha. Okay, the book will be coming out um, in the winter. We're just today we just sent last things to be done, blurb, probation, you know, all the. So the next book will be Joel and Obadiah and Micha. It'll be a little bit bigger. They're longer books, except for Obadiah. Um, they come from a different time period, but the challenges that we all face the same challenges. We're all facing the same. You know, how do we? do what's right in this world? How do we not get distracted? How do we not get discouraged? How do we find comfort where we need to find comfort? And how do we hold people accountable when we need to hold them accountable? And these are the questions that anybody who studies the prophets realizes that they're wrestling with. So we know what's on the horizon for you in terms of writing and book projects. That was my next question. Are you still working on your doctoral dissertation? So the dissertation is on the rhetoric of Micha. Okay, Micha's use of illusions in the rhetorical. And what happened was there's a point in time where I said, okay, I'm working two full-time jobs right now. And the dissertation actually became, much of it became the book that will come out in the fall and the winter on Micha. Micha's going to be, a lot of the ideas there were developed from the dissertation. And when I have, you know, <laughs> the worst statement, I assure you, I'm sure you were to say, when I have the free time to get back to the dissertation or I take a year off, um, then I will, then I intend to finish. Until then, however, I'm going to, you know, I'm continuing to write, continuing to work and hopefully do the right thing. Rabbi Beasley, thank you so much for being with us on the show, for sharing your insights into these biblical books. Thank you very much. It's always a pleasure to talk about close friends of mine and Nakam Zafani are worthy of greater recognition than they deserve. And thank you for taking the time to um, talk to me today. Friends, you've been listening to New Books and Jewish Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. Until next time, goodbye.